A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm getting drunk and chatting with food writer Rachel McCormack about her book Chasing the Dram, Finding the Spirit of Whiskey. Rachel McCormack is a regular panellist on BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet and has also broadcast on the stations from our own correspondent, the Food Programme, and appeared as an expert guest on BBC Radio 2 on both The Simon Mayo Show and The Chris Evans Show. Rachel is the author of Chasing the Dram, Finding the Spirit of Whiskey, which we're going to talk about today. Rachel, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. And I should say, before we start, that I know absolutely nothing about whiskey and also think, and I say think, I don't like it. And Rachel's going to try and convince me that I'm, I'm wrong. She calls herself the whiskey whisperer in the book. And she's going to try and convince me. She's brought some samples in, so, so fingers crossed. But before we get to that, Rachel, tell us how you got into whiskey. Well, the honest truth is what happened was I was trying to get a book doing Spanish food and no one wanted one because I used to live in Spain and what I'm best known for on the radio is talking about Spanish food. And what I used to do when I lived in London was do various supper clubs and do various events to do with Spanish and particularly Catalan food. But nobody wanted one. And then I was thinking... We don't have a history in Scotland at all or any kind of tradition of cooking with whiskey. And I thought that's actually really quite interesting. If you look at recipes from the 19th century from Spain and from Italy, they very often sort of interchange without thinking about it, either wine or brandy, because they had quite small local domestic production of brandy that we didn't have. So we never really had a chance to develop that tradition. And I thought maybe we should. So rather than just saying, let's have a cookbook with some whiskey recipes, I thought, well, what if I go around Scotland and have a look at what whiskey is like in Scotland and also what whiskey means to Scotland, because it's so much more than a drink. So I thought, what if I do a road trip with recipes? And then I thought, there is not one publisher in the entire world that is going to let me do a road trip with recipes. And then one did. So then I thought, well, and I have to write this book and I have to go around Scotland. And I learned an awful lot more than I expected about what whiskey means to Scotland and how much how much it's more to it's almost like the way the Mediterraneans treat food. If you really want to get to know Spanish culture, you want to get to know any Mediterranean culture, like Egyptian culture or Lebanese culture, if you start with their food, people will tell you things about themselves that you don't realise. They will tell you who they are, where they're from. If you know a bit about any kind of history of movement of food and people, you know who's invaded them, who they've invaded, what's happened. And also for them, that's the idea of hospitality and conviviality. Round a table eating is what you do to say that you belong, to show hospitality to other people, to say that you belong somewhere, to be convivial. And I realised that actually all of that stuff in Scotland is whiskey. It's not food. 
at all. So whiskey has so is so much more than just a drink. And the best person really to show me that is bizarrely Compton Mackenzie and his book Whiskey Galore. Now everybody will probably remember the the film The Ealing Comedy, and it is really really funny. And the book is really funny, but what the book does really well is it shows you how much whiskey means to these islanders. And there being no whiskey means they cannot be hospitable. You walk into their house and they can offer you tea, they can offer you ale, or they can offer you ginger beer. It's not whiskey. It's not hospitality. And Although the, the point is you might not want a whiskey, so you're totally free to refuse it, but the point is they need to have it to offer it to you. Which struck me as really interesting that we would have a drink that meant everything that food means to the Mediterranean. Going back to something you've just said, like going into this book, mm-hmm. I would have thought not knowing that much about whiskey, but I know that you know there are single malts and things, and we'll get on to what, what they are in a bit, but I understood that those are the things that people thought were like, you know, the, the good stuff. And so I would have presumed that there was lots of small producers in the way that you've just described what happens in, like, you know, France and Spain. So what is the whisky industry in Scotland like? So varied, it's unbelievable. I mean, you have things like the big blended, the big grain distilleries. To make blended whisky, which is actually 90% of Scotch whisky sales around the world, you need grain whisky, which is done in a continuous still. So there's only about seven of them in Scotland. And they produce, the one in Glasgow, the Strathclyde distillery, probably produces about 10 times the amount of the biggest malt distillery in Scotland, which is Glenfiddich. And there's things like Glenfiddich are maybe producing 6 million litres of whisky a year. And they're owned by a big company called Grant. So it's still a family company. It's been going for over 100 years. Then you have a company like Diageo, which owns about a third of the industry. And they own, I think, maybe one and a half grain distilleries and about 30 or 40 malt distilleries. And although they're very much owned and organised on a very big scale, if you go to the distillery, if you go to a Diageo-owned distillery like Talisker or Lagavulin, it's actually exactly the same process as going to a tiny artisanal distillery like the Glasgow Distillery. And the Glasgow Distillery's only been open a year and it's owned by about three guys. They've had investment from the Middle East and it's in a lockup on the south side of Glasgow in an industrial estate and all of the mash tons and the stills are kind of freestanding and it looks like a real kind of tiny outfit. And so I think in the whisky industry, there's everything from these really big industrial grain distilleries to these tiny ones owned by a few people. But the, the difference with a malt distillery is you go in and you realise that the process in every single malt distillery is essentially the same. And you would know it was owned by a bigger company just because maybe they'd have, say, seven stills or they'd have like seven washed stills and seven spirit stills, whereas the Glasgow distillery's only got two. But then I think Talisker's only got two stills, two low wine stills and two spirit stills. And they are now producing double of what they used to because they're now going 24-7. But then the Glasgow distillery is about to double its production because they're about to go 24-7. So actually from a big owner to a small owner, there's not really that much difference in the actual process. You hinted at what whisky means culturally mm-hmm. to Scottish people. But what about what does the industry mean to Scotland? Well, it's the third biggest industry. Our biggest industry is oil, our second industry is technology, and the third biggest industry is whisky. I think if you live in London, I think you think there's some kind of parity between Irish and Scottish whisky because you can very often get, because of the amount of Irish that lived in London, there's still a, a very strong tradition of drinking Jameson's. So people in London always say, oh, you know, but how much is Irish whisky worth in terms of the industry? The Scotch whisky industry produces... There's a very specific alcohol spirit measurement, which is a case, and I think it might be like 13 bottles or something that isn't a proper actual case that you can buy. And the Irish whisky industry produces 6 million a year. 
and the Japanese whisky industry produces six million a year, and the Scotch whisky industry produces a hundred million a year. So it's just it's a completely different it's a completely different level of of money and size of industry. Beyond that, what's the difference between apart from the spelling? What's the difference between Irish and Scotch whisky? And I want to broaden that out as well. If we bring into it, you know, something like bourbon or whatever, a bottle of Maker's Mark or something, what's the difference? Well, the difference is what they often use to make the whiskey. I mean, a malt whiskey, you can only use malted barley and nothing else. And I think with bourbon, they use a lot of corn in their mash. And the other thing with bourbon is they can only use their barrels once, so their barrels are all new. There was an agreement between the Union of Coopers, I think, in the early 20s. I can't remember the exact date. Um, it was in sort of early 20th century. And their agreement was that they would only use they, they would only use new barrels so that the Coopers still had work. So that means that all the barrels would end up getting exported to Scotland and we use them because we always use casks that have already been used. We don't use new casks. So that's one of the differences. The differences with the Irish whiskey, the thing that Irish whiskey has is it's always triple distilled. If It's not always malt whiskey, but it's normally pot still. They don't use a continuous still. Even if they make a malt whiskey, they distill it three times. And the only Scotch whisky that's distilled three times continuously all the time is Auchentoshan. And there's one of the Campbelltown whiskies is Hazelburn is distilled three times. But that's not very normal in, in Scottish whisky. It's only an Irish whisky that's distilled three times, which makes it sweeter. Also, I would say the difference between, say, bourbon and Irish whisky and Scotch is because they just don't have the they just don't have the variety of tastes. I mean, we have everything that from say a Balvenie that's really sweet and kind of cinnamony and peppery to something like a really really heavy Lagavulin, which is just taste of kind of peat bogs and perfume. And no one has that range. And also, I think our range of prices. I mean, you can buy blended whisky in a supermarket for say ten pounds for a seventy five centiliter bottle, and you can buy like an really really old black bowmore i think the last one sold for like a hundred thousand pounds so there's like a massive range of prices with scotch whiskey that bourbon and irish whiskey doesn't have blended whiskey again in my ignorance i would always presume you know because blended whiskey is a thing you see in the supermarket most of all and probably some of the the more famous names if you're not that involved in in knowing about whiskey and so i've always presumed that it was you know it was a bit rubbish but I was amazed at what goes into it, really. So a bottle of Johnny Walker has, like, 32 different, different blends in it. How does that work? So there's 32 different malt whiskies in Johnny Walker, and it's about... The thing is, being a blend... See, Johnny Walker, Ballantyne's famous grouse, they're 85% grain whisky. So 85% of the whisky has been made in a, one of these big continuous distills. And then the 15% added more or less it's not that exact number and you'll not find out exactly what the percentages are is then a different uh, malt whiskies but most of these malt whisky distilleries especially ones on Speyside were set up for the blending industry and what happened I think with blends was they were softer because you think a lot of the time in the 19th century when whiskey when the whiskey industry really took off a lot of these the barley was being heated by the barley was being malted using peat and then the, the pot stills were being heated by gas or by oil, so they were really heavy. So what you'd then have with these grain, because these grain whiskies were much lighter, they would blend them together to make a blend that suited southern Scottish and English palates, and then that suited the palates of people abroad because they weren't so heavy. I mean, the malt whisky industry's really changed over the past 100 years, but even now you'll still find malt whiskies that you just you can't get on the market because every single bit of this malt whisky goes into the production of Chivas or the production of Valentine's 
or the production of Johnny Walker. So you'll, they don't sell them on the market. I mean, malt whiskey's been sold on the off open market really only started in the 60s. Glenfiddich started it because the Grants didn't have grain distillery. And so they were having problems getting grain whiskey. So they just got really fed up and decided to start selling malt whiskey at the same time the airport duty free started. Because that was you know, when people going into airports and flying started to become a much more normal thing. So they needed something to buy the duty free. So that Glenfiddich started selling malt whiskey and they were the first malt whiskey to really start mass marketing. So then after that, other people then started labelling their malt whiskies. I mean, something like Kalila has only been available as a malt, I think maybe since about the early, early 2002, maybe. You know, it's not been on the market long and they've been making Kalila for over 100 years. It's just that it's all gone into the production of blended whiskey. And there's also brands that are made in Scotland and sold abroad that we'd never get here, isn't there? It really depended on what took off in the 19th century. I mean, so there's a brand in Colombia called Old Par, and it's called Grand Old Par, and it was originally made by a greengrocer and wine merchant in London. And Grand Old Par was supposed to be something to do with, named after Tom Par, who was supposed to be the oldest man in England. So again, they were very much playing on that idea of things being old and older whiskey being better and things being mature. And they think that something must have happened in that Old Par must have been smuggled across from Panama to Colombia at some point, and it really just caught people's imaginations. And Old Par in Colombia, something like 50% of the Scotch whisky sales in Colombia are Grand Old Par, and it's not been sold in the UK since like the early 80s. No, you just can't get it here. And they have carnivals. There's a town in the Caribbean coast of Colombia called Barranquilla and they have a carnival and a section of their carnival is the Old Par Carnival. And they sell Old Par as the foreign drink with the Colombian hearts just because it's theirs. It's, it's almost like it's not nothing to do with us anymore. And when you do that, you notice if you go around different um, countries in the world, you're really surprised at the malt whiskey that they, or the, the blended whiskey that they drink. It can be stuff that you know British people have never heard of because they've just never seen it. In Scotland, the biggest selling blended whiskey is Famous Grouse. So people always assume that Famous Grouse will be everywhere. But you go to Spain and, I mean, Famous Grouse, you can get it, but it's not a really popular blend. The popular blend is J&B or Glen Campbell. And Glen Campbell, you can hardly get in Scotland. Anyone familiar with French wines in particular uh-huh. will, will, will know that the wines are they're named after. You buy the wines depending on what region that wine comes from and... The point of that is the the terroir, the the land that the wine is, that the, the grapes are grown on, is important to the to the end product. And whiskies have regions, don't they? There are regions, but you talk in the book about how actually the place itself is not necessarily that important. Not anymore. I think the thing is with modern methods of distilling, it's really not important anymore. It was supposed to be. I mean, Isla whiskey is the famously heavy peated whiskey. Speyside whiskey is lighter. I mean, I always say if you want to start from lighter to heavier whiskey, you start off in the lowlands, you kind of go around Scotland anti-clockwise and you go up to Speyside. And then the further west you go in the highlands, the heavier the whiskey is. And so, for example, if there are people I know that don't like peated whiskey at all, and I will say to them, well, don't drink anything west of Glenmorangie because you won't, you won't like it. But at the same time, then there's some Speyside distilleries that are making peated whiskey. Isla, then Brulade is now making... Brulade distilleries on Isla, and they're now making a non-peated whiskey. But I'd say as a general rule, you can kind of say that the further west that you go, the kind of heavier and peatier it is. But then there's this new two new distilleries on the Western Isles, one in Lewis and one on Harris, and I have no idea what kind of whiskey they're making. It could I very much doubt it's light and space dish, but you just never know. 
And as I said, we're going to try some in a bit. But if I do develop a, a liking for whiskey, uh-huh. can I make my own? Not advisable. It's illegal. For a start, it's illegal. For a second, it's really, really dodgy. You probably would poison yourself. You have to be really, really careful. When you're distilling whiskey, the first thing that you have to do is you have to take off the four shots and the faints. So the four shots have too many kind of heavy alcohol esters in them and they're the ones that can make you go blind. And then the faints at the end have, they don't, it doesn't have enough alcohol in it, so it doesn't have enough taste. And both of them go back to get redistilled. People do have illegal stills somewhere. Apparently, there might still be one in Scotland. But there was a rumour that in the 1980s, the Karate Club in Stornoway were making their own. And sometimes you might find someone in a weird, out of the way place will have a tiny wee still and be making stuff more as a hobby. But. Someone said to me, nowadays all the people who used to be maybe making illegal whiskey are all now making legal gin because you can make legal gin relatively cheaply and make some actual money as opposed to having to hide from the HMRC because they will come and get you. They will tear your house apart to see if you've got an illegal still. I'm Andrew Muller. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rachel McCormack. We're talking about her book, Chasing the Dram, Finding the Spirit of Whiskey. And Rachel, throughout this book, you... Mm -hmm travel around Scotland, meeting people, experiencing things and trying whiskies, obviously. And I wanted to talk about some of those travels mm-hmm. in the second part of the show. Tell me about this thing called the Drambury. There's a thing that whiskey people are really quite different, say, from gin people, because gin people can talk about botanicals and then they finish the conversation. Whiskey people start talking about barley and then they'll start talking about 
length of time of fermentation in, in a fermentation tank and four days later they're still not even got to distilling and they're really convivial and there's there's various different festivals that you can go to so one of them you can, can go to Isla and they have like a four day festival where it's a lot of because Isla's very most Isla whiskey is very peated it's a very much a Scandinavian thing Scandinavian market really like the peated whiskey so it's kind of full of Scandinavians and camper vans for four days and there's another one there's a one you can go to in the Netherlands called Malt Stock, which is essentially camping and talking about whiskey with 350 tall Dutch people. And there was no way I was going to do that. And I knew that for this book I had to do, I mean, it sounds just a laugh, but it was actual research. And I've, so I met somebody who'd, who'd set up this thing called Dranbury. And what he did was he started off with some friends saying, let's get together in a hostel, stay over a weekend, we'll bring a bottle of whiskey that we like to share and you can tell me why you've brought this. It can be any kind of whiskey, but if you don't have anybody else that likes whiskey at home and you've got this bottle you want other people to try, come along and have some whiskey. And it's now expanded until it's got about 70 people. So basically, you go to a youth hostel and you spend a weekend drinking whiskey and talking about whiskey. So it's kind of like Bible camp, but about whiskey. I mean, I don't know if you did, if like anybody listening was like in the scripture union or like Bible school or something. Probably as not a, listening to this show. As no. a teenager, well, you never know. People do weird things as teenagers. And so you kind of, you ended up having to go camping and like singing Bible songs for a weekend. Well, this was the same thing, but for adults and about whiskey. And it was really funny because they are really, I'd never seen so many people who were utterly obsessed with the same thing. And if you ever go around a whiskey distillery, there's always these branded um, jackets and T-shirts and caps with like the name of the distillery and the name of the whiskey on them. Every single person apart from me was wearing something that weekend that they had bought at distilleries. They'd all been to loads of distilleries. They just talked about different types of whiskey and casks and had big discussions about who was doing what, where and who had been to this distillery. And you can see it's their entire life. Is that you know they have a job, and apart from the job, their entire life is whiskey. And quite a lot of them even had given up their jobs to work in whiskey to become private bottlers or brand ambassadors and things like that. And they all they all kind of knew each other, and they would all see each other from different festivals. Because the week the Dranbury this year is is this coming weekend, and half of them are all on Facebook going, "Who's coming and who's not coming, and why am I not seeing you this year?" Because it's like their annual meeting now. There's another point in the book where you you take a excursion with your father to uh-huh. visit a um a foundry where they repair build and repair the stills that are, that are used for distilling whiskey. And one of the fascinating facts in the book again that I didn't know was that the shape of the still has an impact on the taste of the whiskey. And to the extent that if an old still has got a dent in it or something, then when they order a new one, they'll want a similar dent in the new one. So there's a there's a match to the taste. How important is it? I am not sure. If you read things like scotchwhiskey.com and they have an incredibly extensive kind of encyclopedia of whiskey and you can look up the shape of every single distill in every single distillery and it will tell you why this still is the shape that it is. I'm not entirely sure that everybody knows, but no one has taken any chances. I mean, there is definitely a difference in taste. If you if you think the heaviest whiskey is Laphroaig and well, one of the heaviest whiskies is is the malt whisky Laphroaig, and their stills are really, really small, so they catch all these kind of heavy molecules that would not travel as far up a really tall still. And then a very light whisky, kind of famous for being really light and fresh, is Glenmorangie, and their stills are sort of as tall as giraffes. It's one of their selling points. I was in Sri Lanka, I was in Colombo Airport in Sri Lanka, but in sort of in between researching the book, I was there for something else to do with work. And they had like their entire shtick, selling shtick, was like Glenmorangie with a 
toy giraffe beside them. And you're kind of going, what is this? Like, buy a bottle of Glen Morangi and get a free giraffe? Or what's going on here? And it turned out their selling point is, you know, our stills are as tall as giraffes. And this is what gives us our unique taste. And there is there is a thing where people, they do have this very idea that a, a certain shape of still will give a certain type of character. And they want to keep that character. So there's a really old malt distillery in the highlands called Mortlach. Now Mortlach is now available as a malt but it, it's only really recently been on the market as a malt and it's it stills are completely different shapes from each other because the farmer that started off Mortlach had money to buy put in a different still at a different time and so just built them up. But they have to keep those shapes because that's those shapes and the combination of those different stills keep give Mortlach the taste that it's got and it's a taste that everybody understands because the problem if you're making whiskey even for blends, for blends and even just for for straight bottling is is that people expect a certain character from your whiskey so if you don't have that character then you're not your whiskey anymore so you know the thing is because most malt whiskey was going into blends the blends need to be reliable the thing with a blended whiskey say johnny walker black or, or ballantines is that you buy it in january in london and you buy it in june in singapore it has it really should have the same taste so for that you need really reliable malt whiskies that will taste exactly the same so this is why one of the things is this, the shape still has to be exactly the same as it was before. And also the blenders. I mean, the people that do that actual blending, these are, you know, incredibly skilled people. And the thing about their skill is they just, is it's just to do with smelling and sometimes even looking. I mean, I mean, they're very modest, but you, you look at them and you see what they do and how, and how they, when blenders taste, they put in a lot more water than the normal people would drinking whiskey. They put in, I think they dilute it to about 30%. And most of what they do is smelling. And they'll say, well, you know, that cask isn't going to work for this whiskey, so it has to go into something else. Or if we can combine these things, this will keep giving us the same taste that, that Johnny Walker or Ballantine's always has. I think we should try one Right, before what we would you on. like to try? Why don't you start with... If you don't like whiskey, I want you to start off with Black Label. Yeah, so this blend. is we've got some Johnny Walker which we found in the studio. It is not even one that Rachel bought in. There was a bottle in the studio already. I haven't tried any Johnny Walker since years ago when we interviewed Christopher Hitchens for this show because it was his tipple of choice. It smells like Christmas pudding. Now, Johnny Walker has, I think, is it 40% normally? Let's have a look. Yep, it's 40%. Normally, um, malt, normally whiskies are diluted down to 40%, so they come off the cask a certain strength, and then they dilute them down to 40%. So that you can have with water, you can have it with soda. Johnny Walker Black Label is the best-selling well, the Johnny Walker brand is the best-selling whiskey in the world. Like, if the, if Johnny Walker sales stop, the Scottish whiskey industry would collapse. They would it would lose about half of its income because one of the things about Johnny Walker whiskey is it's become such a prestigious thing throughout the world. If you're looking at a developing country and you're looking at projected whiskey sales, before you even look at a marketing campaign, what you need to look at is their GDP. And if the GDP is increasing, you know that Johnny Walker Red Label sales will increase because if you can't afford a Rolex, you can't afford a Mercedes, you can afford a bottle of Johnny Walker Red Label, it does say that you've arrived. The prestige that Scotch whisky has in Latin America and in Africa and in Asia is really, really quite impressive to look at. I mean, it is partly to do with colonialism and it is partly to do with these 19th century whisky barons who just said this is a luxurious drink that you need to have and they went everywhere selling scotch whiskey as this luxurious brand that was that you could buy if you couldn't afford a new car or or a new house now this isn't horrible okay well it's a blend so what is it that you don't particularly like about it well it's it burns 
It's okay. very fiery. Well, in which case you want to put some water in. That's one of your problems. Put in some mm-hmm. water and then see what you think. I'm putting in some water. Probably put a bit too much water there. But yeah, that clearly tempers I mean, that's it one down of things, a bit. If it, if it burns, I mean, one of the things you have to be very careful as well is if you get a cask strength whiskey, which is sometimes as much as 59%, alcohol it's coming it's the strength that it is it does what it says in the tin it's the, the strength of alcohol that's come off the cask it's not been watered down at all and a lot of the times when you put in water it does actually bring out a lot of the flavors because you don't get that pure alcohol burn also what you're getting with with johnny walker is, is is quite smoky and what i've generally found and it's not always true with everybody if you think you don't like whiskey the problem is is that you don't like peat peated whiskey you like Speyside whiskies, you'll maybe like East Highland whiskies, and you'll like Lowland whiskies, you'll like Ockintosh, and you'll like Balvenie, you'll maybe like Aran whiskey or Macallan. You're not going to really, you're not going to really like Lagavulin or Laphroaig. So, I mean, there are people that I know that if you, they just smell a Laphroaig and it makes them heave, but they actually do really like, say, an Aran whiskey or or Ockintoshin. Well, we've tried the uh, the training wheels whiskey there, and, then I, and, I, and I've passed that. So the second one I'm going to want you to try is like so. What you do is rinse your glass out with a bit of water, mm-hmm. and then I want you to try a Glendronach, which is a Highland whiskey, which is quite well known for being kept in sherry casks. So the two types of casks that whiskey is generally matured in is our bourbon, ex-bourbon cask or ex-sherry casks, and ex-sherry cask gives you a very sp- specific flavour. It's much softer. So I want you to try this. First of all, I want you to try it without water, and then I want you to add a wee bit of water, and I want you to see what you think about this one. It definitely smells different as well. Oh, that's much nicer. Mm-hmm. I thought you'd like that. Yeah, I mean, that definitely has more of a... Sherry taste. A sherry feel to it, yeah, absolutely. No, I like that. Mm. And in fact, I don't want to add any water to it. That's pretty good. And see, that's the thing. I am convinced there is a whiskey for everybody. Actually, I was with somebody recently and we were in a pub in Belfast and I bought them a Glenkinchy, which is a lowland whiskey. And because they kept saying, I don't like whiskey, I don't like whiskey, but they like rum. And I think they just all think that all whiskey is really smoky and fiery the way that Johnny Walker back label is. And they tried this Glenkinchy and their actual quote was, I really like that, but I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of finding a whiskey that I like because I don't like whiskey. So I do think, I think the thing is, is, is it's actually really fun. That's the thing I've realised in the past couple of years. Like when I'm talking about these people who go to Dranbury and are absolutely obsessed with whiskey, one of the reasons that they're obsessed with whiskey is because they have so much fun. You know, they meet people, they meet a load of new people and they have these brilliant conversations. And again, it's that conviviality. I could see when you go to Dranbury, it's a load of people all meeting and talking about whiskey and they're all sharing it in the way that Spanish people would be talking about food and sharing food. They're talking about whiskey, they're bonding, they're having a fantastic time, they're having a great weekend, they're they're showing people new things they've discovered, they've got other people telling them things. I mean, I've now joined since I finished the book and I don't have to do this anymore. I have joined Glasgow's Whiskey Club and it's great fun. I mean, you go every month, you try six whiskeys, some you like, some you don't. And you see, they, and they all go on day trips to distilleries like every couple of months or they, they have an annual day trip to Campbelltown where they all get on the bus and go to Campbelltown for five hours. You know, they all go and spend far too much money on in the shop and then they all go back home on the bus. And you can see that they've, they've kind of got an, a totally new world for, for them that's just great fun. <clears throat> While I finish the last mouthful of this off, Tell us about, there's a ceremony you go to in the book. The, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, the Keeper of... The Keepers of the Quake. 
Well, the thing is, if you know anything about wine, you'd know that things like in Burgundy, if you've done an awful lot for the Burgundy industry, they'll make you like a Chevalier de Burgundy or something, where you kind of go to some kind of ceremony and you have to get dressed up and you maybe get crossed by a sword and all of a sudden you are like a gentleman of Burgundy. And it's a way that various wine regions or wine industries will thank you for work that you've done. And about 30 years ago, it was a South African Scott, who worked in the whiskey industry and must have worked for a company that also owned some Burgundy wine, and he saw the ceremony. He was, I think, he was being made a chevalier in, in Burgundy, and he thought the Scotch industry has to do this. They have to say thank you to people who've done an awful lot for the Scotch industry, and if we're going to do it, we have to do it with every single company, not just one or two, and it has to be bigger than anybody else does, and it has to be better than anybody else does. So it is essentially an entire evening of a, just a complete orgy of tartan and bagpipes for an entire evening. You go to Blair Castle, it's a kind of faux medieval banqueting hall that's obviously Victorian, and the whole thing is just one big bagpipe, haggis swashing, harp playing, banqueting meal where everybody's in it in tartan, all the men are in kilts, and it's it was hilarious. I mean, I'm not a big formal occasion person, but I just thought it was the f- it was just amazing. If anybody listening ever gets invited to the keeper's banquet, and if you're even if you're living in Australia, just go for one night of your life. It is incredible. I mean, the, the funny thing is also watching, and you, I f- you forget when you when you're Scottish how much foreign men absolutely love wearing kilts. They think it's the best thing ever. They put a kilt on and they strut and they smile and they swish, and they're absolutely thrilled to the core to be in a kilt. And the French all seem to wear them on their hips, and then the Mexicans who were there they had no idea how to walk in them, so they kept looking at all the Scot- old Scottish men that were there to try and copy how they were walking because they'd never worn anything like this in their lives. And what they do they take people to this medieval this Victorian banqueting hall they give them an entire sort of formal ceremony and they give them and they they induct them in the secret ceremony into being a keeper of the quake and they give them a small quake and a quake is like a a really small drinking vessel or it can be various sizes but it's two-handled and there is, as there is with everything in Scotland, an absolute load of nonsense stories about how it's actually a loving cup and it was when you got married, you both drank from the same cup and then that cup was used for a christening for a baby. And that's one of those stories that's completely made up and bits of it may be even made up by me because everybody makes up all these stories like the way they make up tartan. But it was just hilarious. I mean, it was just brilliant to watch and it was just such fun. And what I could see, again, it was the way that the Scotch industry is still really good at looking after its people because I think whatever industry you're in, one of the problems you have in every single department, every single kind of workforce is keeping people's morale up. And if you have come, if you've done something for the Scotch whiskey industry in Peru and you've come from Peru and they're making you a keeper, you're going to go home and whatever you're doing for the Scottish industry, you're going to do it twice as hard for years because you will never forget that that's what they gave you in your entire life. And it just was great fun. And you could see, again, it was that whole idea of hospitality. You were there. It was a really formal event, but you were there to really enjoy yourself and have a really good time while dressed up in tartan. What's the next whiskey we're going to try? The next one is a Glen Farkless. And Glen Farkless are quite unusual in that their stills are still heated by gas. 
So they kind of quite, they can end up having quite a strong taste that's different from the way other stills are heated now. And also Glen Farkless is still a family-owned company. There's a few. There's they always seem to be called Grants in Speyside. There's like the Grants that aren't the Grants from Glen Grant, and the Grants that aren't the Glen Farkless Grants. There's another set of Grants. There's another who's another founder of another distillery in the 19th century who's also a Grant. So this is I want you to try the Glen Farkless. This will this will be a bit stronger than the Glen Dronach, but have a try and see what you think. Also, Glen whiskies are almost always Bayside and Highland. Well, it smells really good. It smells almost honey. Like, again, completely different from the last one that definitely smelled like it was it was sherry. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's... Um, ooh. Well, that's probably because, I forgot to tell you, that's cask strength. So that's probably 59% as opposed to 40%, so you'll want to put some water in yeah, that. Yeah, I think I'm going to put a bit of water in this one, but the taste is... Pretty good. You'll notice I'm saying all of these things are like a Scottish man. I'm basically saying this is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all right. It's, it's kind of good. And that's, I suppose, one of the things, you know, we are not, we're not a people given to kind of exaggerating California levels of enthusiasm. And, you know, everybody says something's no bad. It's like the best thing that you can say to anybody. And it is one of those quite strange things if you're if you're with, say, Americans tasting whiskey and your Americans are really enthusiastic and they're saying, This is fantastic, this is great. Now the Scottish people are going, It's not bad, it's like I mean, which for them is this is absolutely amazingly wonderful, but we're all quite quiet about it. Well I'm enjoying this one. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned earlier, one of the, the ideas behind this book is that, you know, you want to encourage people to, to use whiskey and cooking more. So tell us something about that. The, the book has recipes in it, but what sort of things well, th- can we use whiskey in? Well, I think if you, if you look at any old French recipes that have brandy in them, you put whiskey in them instead, and you'll see the, in, the difference in... Whiskey has much has more interesting residuals than brandy, to be honest. Even any kind of blended whiskey, because it's got a blend of so many different things, the residuals will be more interesting. So you'll get a depth of flavour if you add whiskey instead of brandy. You can also do things like I different whiskies give you quite different tastes, and even if you just use blended whiskey, a, a black label's very different to a Ballantine's, and it's very different to Famous Grouse. So you find that if you use those three whiskies and you only use those three in different dishes, you would notice a slightly different taste. I really like making Gravidlax with whiskey, and I really like making it with a Highland Park or a Springbank. But again, that isn't a cheap thing to do. You might rather use. Black Label or Vat 69, which is quite a peated blend. And I just, it's just easy. I mean, it's just things like, um, you know, I've put, I've done whiskey where I've just cooked mushrooms and butter and whiskey and a bay leaf and nothing else. And someone has stood and watched me do it and said, no, 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 you've put pepper in that and you've put chilli in that and you've got other stuff that I don't know. And I'm like, no, I've not. You stood and watched me. I've just put whiskey in it, nothing else. But then if you used a different whiskey in that one, it would taste different. Oh, really different. I mean, if you do, they've got a recipe for something with Talisker whiskey, which is quite a peated whiskey. And it's chicken with a kind of slight cream sauce. And if you put in Talisker in that or you put in the Glendronach, you'd get a really, really different tasting dish. And we did, was one of the things I did at Ranbury, I kind of, we did some experiments of like putting salmon in with different types of whiskey so that you could taste the difference and see what worked better. And again, it's, it gives you that variety because I mean, you know, the problem about cooking, if you're cooking at home, is that you don't really want to be constantly doing something new because the powers of concentration that it takes. I mean, if you just come home from work, you just want something quick. And the fact that if you've got whiskey, you can use it and have quite a different taste in different times. And that's the only ingredient you've changed is a different type of whiskey. So the last one. Now the last one is we will see whether you like this or not. This is the Papita Whiskey from Isla. It's 
Now, a lot of Isla's distilleries are owned by big companies and the only thing that happens on the island in these distilleries is the whiskey is made. The new mix is distilled and then it's taken in a tankard off the island and they put it in barrels on in mainland Scotland. Kilcoman is a farm distillery where they, I think they, they keep their whiskey on site and I think they bottle it on site as well. I could be wrong about the bottling, but I know they definitely they definitely keep the barrels on site. So it's peated whiskey, but it's not a very strongly peated whiskey, and it's quite a young whiskey. And they are they are one of those small independent companies that are just kind of going back to being farm distillers, which is what originally all all whiskey was before blended whiskey started. So before grain distilling, before grain distilling started, all there was was malt distilling, and it was always done by farmers. So they're kind of going back to being a farm distillery. You've mentioned this all the way through the interview, and people would already know this that malt whiskies are. Of the you know of the west coast of Ireland, particularly, are famous for being peaty. But what does that actually mean? Why does it smell? What or taste it means? What it means is that oh, when, wow. when you malt your barley, yeah, it really does. When you malt your barley, what you do is when you're drying your barley off. Once it's gone green and you're trying to dry it off in a kiln, you put in peat to dry it off, so you get the specific smell. the The grains really, really take on. It's called. I think they put it in peat. It's called PPM, which is parts per million. And whiskey obsessives who are really geeky get really obsessed about what whiskey has parts per million of these phenols because phenols are the thing that may give you that give you that peaty taste. And there's a whiskey called Octomore, which is done by Brulade, which is supposed to be the peatiest whiskey in the world, but it just tastes of peat. It doesn't really taste of anything else. And there's a the guy who runs a private bottler's called Caddenheads, who's based in Campbelltown. And he's he's in the book, Mark Watt. His explanation for it is these people get obsessed and it's kind of like the curry on a Friday night. Who can have the strongest curry on a Friday night? Who can have the peatiest whiskey? And peats are really... I mean, peated whiskey is something you either like or you don't. If you do like it, you really like it. And if you don't like it, it's just not for you at all. It doesn't mean that you don't like whiskey. It's just you don't like peated whiskey. And you have to see. Also, you can train yourself. I mean, I had my friend Sherry came over and we went up to Oban and she tried a Laphroaig and she hated it. And she said she didn't like whiskey. And after three days, she actually really liked peated whiskey. It just took three days of tasting different things. I think this is, I mean, it's, it clearly is a acquired taste, but the taste is great. I mean, it is, the smell is really great. And no, I really like this one. I mean, of all of them, I think the sherry one was my favourite. The first one. Of all of them. But my issue with the drink is the, the heat of it, not the taste. So I, while I was reading the book, I was you were talking to people who were saying, like, the issue they have with the pea is they don't like the taste of the pea. But I think the taste of the pea is great. I mean, this is really a good, this is a good drink. I mean, I love peated whiskey, but just it's just some people don't. And it just was a thing that I noticed that if people didn't like whiskey, it was because it was too fiery. Or it was too peaty. That was the two things I noticed that they didn't that they really didn't like. And fiery whiskey isn't as common as peated whiskey when you start getting into malts. I mean, if you're if you're finding, I just think you have to find the one that you like, and it's quite fun. You know, you can go out with say a different people and stand in a whiskey bar and go, can we even just smell these bottles and see what kind of one you think? Oh, I fancy this. I fancy trying that one. I mean, for me, whiskey. The thing about whiskey, I think it's like middle aged clubbing. I think if you're too old to be going out clubbing on a Saturday night, and if you remember what a Saturday night meant to you when you're kind of in your heyday in your early 20s and it was the thing you looked forward to and how fun it was, and then at one point you kind of find yourself standing in the club going, everybody here's almost young enough to be my child and 
I need to go home and I can't be bothered with this. Whiskey is kind of that middle-aged club and you get that thrill and that enjoyment from trying a new whiskey or and, and, and enjoying sharing a whiskey with somebody and giving somebody else a whiskey that they like and finding one that's new that you like. I mean, I have seen like people's faces who've like been willing to come out with me to there's a, there's a pub in Glasgow called the Pot Still and it's got about seven hundred whiskies. Seven hundred whiskies. Uh huh. And they come, you know, they come with me, and after about three goes, I find a whiskey that they like, and their face just lights up because they're like, "I thought I didn't like whiskey," and I'm going, "Well, you do. You just like that one." I think going into this as someone who claimed not to like whiskey, this one I've now decided is my favourite of the four. This happens a lot. This is what I find really funny because. The Kilcoman whiskey is a really, really nice whiskey. A really, really, really good whiskey. So what you should probably do then is start looking and exploring the Isla whiskeys and see what you think of them. Again, it's something that you found that you like that you didn't know. And it's fun. One more question then. Mm-hmm. So this book is subtitled Finding the Spirit of Whiskey. Mm-hmm. So what is the spirit of whiskey in Scotland and did you find it? I think it's, it's, a, it's the idea of conviviality. It's the fact that people take things personally about whiskey and it's the conviviality of it. I was with a friend from whose father is from Isla and we were in the pot still one night and she wanted to buy me a drink and I said, why don't we get the Kilcoman? And she said, oh, that's the farm behind Dave's farm. Oh, I know the one you mean and it's up that wee road round there. And I said, well, I'll get this one and why don't you get another one and then we can kind of swap around. And she kind of touched my arm and went, no, we'll get the same one and then we can share, we can have the same one together. And I thought she'd never say that about food or wine or gin. For her, this idea was we were partaking of the same thing and sharing in that kind of spirit of conviviality together, having the same drink. And I realised that was almost hardwired into her DNA in a way that kind of sharing food is hardwired into somebody's DNA from if they're from the Mediterranean. It's completely normal for her to actually say, no, this is a special moment and we're going to share this moment together drinking the same whiskey in this pub. So that to me is kind of the spirit of whiskey. It's that idea of conviviality and hospitality and having fun and enjoying yourself. So I've been talking to Rachel McCormack. We've been talking about her book, Chasing the Dram. Finding the Spirit of Whiskey, which is out now from Simon and Shuster. Rachel, thanks for coming in and talking to Little Atoms today. Thank you very much for having me. I think your um, your whiskey whispering skills might have worked again, or I might just be wasted, I'm not sure. I'm sure they've worked. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.